0: Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Steve Easley, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Alan. Happy to be here. Yeah, great. So glad you could join us. We um so we're going to geek out on building science today a little bit. And, um, but first, let me give the audience the listener um, a little bit of let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, for those folks who may not know you, you've been in the industry over 30 years doing building science consulting and training and teaching and educating and so forth. Um, one interesting thing about your background, you actually do expert witness in litigation uh, in in courts, right for, for legal reasons. That's yeah more it, it? Uh,
1: yeah there's there's some there's certainly a part of that I mean a lot of my work is really focused on helping builders uh, reduce their callback costs and uh, involved in some of that sometimes they get crossways with customers and you know so I work to help uh, help them resolve those issues but most of my work is really focused around you know educating builders and their contract subcontractors on best practices so that these callbacks and and issues don't happen to begin with
0: That's Steve Easley, an internationally recognized construction consultant specializing in solving building science related problems and educating building industry professionals and their trade partners. Steve got his start in the industry by teaching for 10 years as a professor of building construction and contracting at Purdue University. He then went out on his own, opened his own consulting firm, Steve Easley & Associates, and has been a leading voice in the industry ever since. On today's podcast, we'll take a deep dive on a couple of sustainability topics. First, electrification. What are the implications for the building industry? What are the challenges for the building industry? And how do we overcome those challenges? We'll also talk about decarbonization. What does it mean? What's coming? How do we overcome the challenges? What are the challenges? And finally, we'll end with a discussion on how how long should a home last? Steve offers his views there as well. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. I just, I find the litigation interesting just because I know not many folks want to delve into that, right? They're, they kind of shy away. That can be, that can be tough work sometimes. So I always find that interesting that you're, that you do that. So, I mean, I think it speaks to your credentials, right? That folks are willing to, to go there with you. Um, some of your background here, I'm just going to pull this from your website. So for folks who are interested, you can go to steveeasley.com. Um, You taught at Purdue. You taught a professor of building construction and contracting. I'd like to come back and talk a little bit more about that. Um, You've been a judge for the DOE housing innovation awards for many, many years. You advised on the uh, sat on the consensus committee for the national green building standard when it was uh, developed, I guess, back in 2012, 2015. And I know you teach for EBA, the energy and uh, environmental building alliance, and then interesting, and we'll talk about this, you Sit on the board of directors for the Electric and Gas Industries Association. I know you do a lot of work with utilities and training and so forth. And then, of all things, you're a distinguished College of Technology alumni for Purdue University. So let's let's start there. Talk talk. Uh, tell the folks. Tell me about your um, your time at Purdue and what you did there.
1: Well, um, most of my work there was focused on, you know, building science related issues. Uh, Purdue has a program about 500 students are nationally certified as do the Associated Schools of Construction. Um, but um, that's really how I kind of got involved with a lot of the building envelope was um, w- we decided that we were going to we thought it was necessary because of all the oil prices and oil issues and everything were going on, gasoline, oil, natural gas, electricity was going up so much. We decided that we would build this um research home where we'd show that we could take a typical 2000 square foot house and maybe put about 5% into it more, and, but yet substantially reduce its energy use. And so we actually created a house that you could in a Chicago like climate that you could heat and cool for, for less than, you know, $250 a year. And many times it was less than the heating costs were less than hundred a year, the whole entire year. And, um, I remember when I was doing some research, we, were, we were totally recognized that controlling air infiltration and adding insulation is a critical part of it. And uh, this was 1985, by the way. <laughs> and so we ran, I ran across this project product called Tyvek. And so I called the DuPont folks up and said, Hey, I'd like to take a look at that. And so we wrapped the building in it. We also used um, one inch of uh, extruded polystyrene uh, foam on the exterior from the um from the soffit all the way down to the soil. And then from there, two inches of foam, you know, below grade and ended up the house was um, extremely tight, you know, let, I think it was less than two air changes per hour for that period of time. And uh, it was a good successful project. That's, that's So that's how I kind of got started in building science. And ever since then, I've just been, you know, working to help people come up with more creative ways to, to save energy.
0: And how many years did you teach at
1: Purdue? Technically, I was there from 1981, as, as a tenure track position, I was there from 1981 to roughly 1991.
0: Wow, okay, 10 years. And then
1: tenure ten- doesn't have anything to do with being there 10 years, by the way, it's usually oh, if, ten- if you can't, if you don't get tenure within seven years, you're usually booted out. So Oh, is get, that right? Yeah, you get two tries. Okay. Um,
0: and you obviously made it, so you're tenured. The, um, and then so you mentioned Tyvek in 1985. And then later on, you also had some involvement with uh, DuPont in your education. Uh, series right as you were building out your
1: yes so when in the early days of Tyvek they really didn't know how to sell it they thought well they knew it was a good product but they you know the biggest competition was nothing and so um, I had suggested that they put together what is now known as a specialist network I said what it really makes sense is if you guys had a dedicated sales force that they weren't out there selling they were just out there educating architects and builders just about the science behind it and not, mm-hmm. not actually being salespeople. and um, so that started creating a lot of demand that network grew to about 160 people and Then it becomes such a challenge to how do you train 160 specialists when you might have 20, 30, you know, people coming on board every year. So around that, that was around the turn of the century, around year 2000, we were starting to do work. I was part owner of a company called Building Media, and we were being hired by a variety of people, one of which California Energy Commission to develop uh, online training. And we were one of the first to really utilize video in that process. And we probably over the years did probably 600 videos for the Energy Commission to help educate code officials and builders about how to meet California's code. But then on the building science side, DuPont also realized that, you know, we have a really tremendous challenge to educate all these people and bring them up to speed quick. So we developed what we call Building Knowledge University, which was all video based and for building science training. And and, and to this day, I believe your specialists are still being trained that way. To this day.
0: Yeah, that's right. Is that where so I noticed on your website, also folks can go to measuredhomeperformance.com and you have hundreds of hours of videos up there. Is that many of the ones that you did?
1: Yeah. So if you go to the website, just click on the videos, it takes you to a variety of places. I did 100 shows for the Discovery Channel is on how various building products are made. And then also there's a number of videos we did for the energy commission that are still up there. Also, uh, if you go to the articles and publications part of my website, you can download a recent book that we just published on for the energy commission on uh, building zero net energy homes. And then the measured home performance book is really how to retrofit homes for energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And they're both roughly $30 books, but you can download them off my website for free. Okay,
0: great. Great tip. So is most of your work for new construction or retrofit?
1: Or I mean, it's, it's, a, it's probably a mix. It's primarily new construction, but uh, my work is all B2B. So I don't work with like individual homeowners. It's all working with, you know, uh, people like yourself or builders and architects for that matter as well. Gotcha.
0: Okay. And then I know you've authored many articles and written for all the top publications in the space. One I saw again as I was scouring your website there, Popular Science. What was that all about?
1: Oh, I think that was one of our research projects. They had we did a we did a project um, with the Pacific Gas and Electric where we built a super efficient home. And I think there was there was some coverage on, on that there. Gotcha.
0: Okay. You know, it's cool. I, um I sit on a council up at Penn State, uh, which is my alma mater, and uh, around called the uh, Pennsylvania um, Housing Research uh, Council. And they're charged with training in the state of Pennsylvania contractors and builders and, and code officials. And, and um, they offer now Penn State offers a minor in construction. Um, and you don't have to be an engineer an architectural engineering student uh, major, you can be an accountant, you can be, you know, advertising communications, which I thought was pretty cool. So I think it's 13 credits, I think is a minor. And for those folks who want to gain a little more knowledge in um, construction did Purdue have a back to Purdue for a minute, did they have a Residential construction degree, or what was the?
1: No, their their degree is is generally building construction, and you know you could specialize. You could go into residential, go into commercial. I would say the majority of the Purdue graduates commercial. go into commercial, but there's yeah. probably 10 percent or so, maybe 20 that go into um, residential. And that includes multifamily, by the way. Yeah, yep, yeah, it's been my experience as well. But it's not a trade-oriented course. This is um, you know the first two years are heavy engineering base, and the second two years are your you know, scheduling, strength materials, labor relations, um, you know, ma- management type things, you which know, when you get out, you're capable of running projects.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about some topics. I know that you and I talk from time to time, and I always enjoy those discussions. And um, so i want to let's talk about one that we've we have briefly I like to dive deep around the topic of electrification. Um, I know that you've you've described that, you um, you know, the, the systems used and I think it's primarily it's heating right for electrification uh, on the HVAC side if um, you've talked about the interaction between the building envelope and the, and the system and the, and the heating system and if we're not careful as an industry um, we can introduce prob- comfort problems there for the homeowner right Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, let me explain a little bit about electrification, what what's happening there and why it's happening. You know, when you consider that about 40% of all of greenhouse gas emissions are, come from the built environment, which is residential commercial buildings, uh, people recognize that if we're going to get this climate change under control, and keep in mind since 1950, our our temperature of our world has risen about 0.82 degrees Celsius. And the concern is if it gets above 1.5 degrees, then that becomes a, a huge in terms of disasters, like 2021 alone, we had over $20 billion disasters in the United States, everything from tornadoes to hurricanes, to you know, wildfires, um, you know, drought, a lot of these natural disasters, you may recall last year, we saw Seattle see 113 degrees. Who would have ever thought that? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the scientists believe that, you know, as if we start to get towards that 1.5 degree C, you know, these once in 50 year events are going to happen nine times as much. And so there's a real, con- what the thought is, wow. is that, If we can limit our greenhouse gas emissions by switching from natural gas and oil and fossil fuels, switch over to electricity, it's a lot easier to control the emissions from one power plant than it is, you know, 100 million single family homes. Is that the,
0: yeah, yeah. let me, is that, so that's the idea, because you hear that a lot, you say, folks, well, we're still burning natural gas to create electricity, for instance, but that's the issue, you can control it at the source
1: easier? Yeah, you got better source control. And um, but the goal is, is to eventually get these utilities to switch to a, you know, a a more renewable uh, fuel base. And so some of that will obviously probably be make nuclear more popular. But certainly, like when you look at where I live at in Arizona, APS has made a goal to by 2030 to be 50% all their power generation to be electric renewable, and by 2050 to be 100% renewable energy. So the goal is to move away from fossil fuels altogether, because, you know, these fossil fuels do a lot to add to global warming. For example, since um, we we burn about 30 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in the United States each year, about 120 trillion cubic feet worldwide, hmm. you know, we burn about 19 million barrels of oil a day here in the United States. And so we got to kind of get this carbon thing under control. So the whole concept of electrification is to get people to switch um, their fossil fuels equipment, whether it be oil furnaces, like where you're at out east, or whether it be natural gas equipment for water heating and uh, space conditioning is to switch those to heat pumps. And we've just recently in recent years, we've seen, you know, uh, the development of cold weather heat pumps that can maintain 95% of their capacity. uh, And for that matter, efficiency down to, you know, five below zero, And so as we start to move from these fossil fuel furnaces to heat pumps, they have a whole different operational system. So for example, um, they work by being able to recover the heat out of the air. So if somebody's used to a gas furnace where you simply turn the thermostat and that can liberate a lot of heat very quickly, a heat pump doesn't work like that. A heat pump has to take the heat out of the air and then move it into your house. So heat pumps don't create heat. What they do is just move heat from one place to another. And so even if it's zero degrees outside, the air still has about 80% of the heat in it. So, but it does take longer to extract that heat out of the air when it's zero than it is when it's, it's 40. And so it's important that people are educated as to the nuances of this so that we pay close attention to the building envelope when we install, when we make we make sure that there's no duct leakage, we make sure the ducts are sealed. So we just have to pay way more attention to the building envelope.
0: Interesting. I, so one of your, I think one of your skills, I really, why I enjoy talking to you is you also, you take very complex subjects and make them make them easy and simple to understand That That was an awesome explanation. Yeah. Okay, so if so, you don't get you don't get the same heating rate in the in the home.
1: And so talk about then the impact of the of the billing envelope. Yeah. So let's, for example, if you, uh, if you have a fossil fuel furnace, like I said, you can throw so much heat in the air so quick, you can, you can kind of make up for some of the problems in your typical building envelope, not that you ever should, by the way, Uh, but building envelope measures are some of the most cost effective things that you can do. So if I have a really well designed going forward, as we start to move towards electrification, getting the building envelope right is really, really important for two reasons. One, um, the, the better the building envelope, the lower the load. So that means Means the less solar that we need to buy, which is expensive. And it's a combination of, of building envelope and good solar that's going to make us get more towards zero net energy homes. It's not just throwing a bunch of collectors on the house, which is important, but the more I put into the building envelope, the less solar I need and building mm. envelope measures uh, their energy savings don't diminish with time. These products don't wear out. Like I was talking to some of your research scientists last week, and I was asking them. I said, um, what would you expect the R value to be out of a of polystyrene, you know, 100 years from now? And they say, well, they went and did some research on that and found that they think that at 100 years, that R5 would only drop to about R 4.2. So the bottom line is, is that energy efficiency and measures like insulation, air sealing, uh, exterior insulation, that's one of the smartest things you can do because it's super cost effective. And it lasts for the life of the building and doesn't wear out. Right. Right.
0: And so if so the yeah, so the idea is if the uh, today's furnaces, for instance, like in my area here, um, they mask a lot of the sins on the building
1: envelope, right? Exactly. Just because they can throw so much heat in the air so quickly, uh, but we're going to see. But what, what people don't realize is the amount of methane that goes along with natural gas production. In mm-hmm. other words, um, you know, about eighty percent of natural gas is methane, and it can it could be eighty times um, a more uh, potent green, a greenhouse gas emission or global has more eighty times more global warming potential than CO two. And so it, you know, it, regarding CO2 and, and some of these byproducts, it takes a, uh, you know, a thousand years for nature to remove it. And um, so, boy, anything you can do to reduce your loads, like better building envelope, better insulation, better air sealing, uh, more efficient HVAC equipment. Um, it just makes a lot of sense, um, you know, from an stamp- from environmental standpoint.
0: Yeah. And so, and we're talking heating here, right? Because um, cooling cool. is all our- right. Well, cooling is our, I mean, right on the effect of the building envelope, but in terms of electrification, it's already electrified, right? Right, for sure. So we're for talking sure. heating and you're saying the heat pumps are getting more and more efficient, they can work further and further north.
1: Uh, absolutely. I think it's its not common knowledge um, that, you know, we can use heat pumps in, in cold climates. It's always yeah. the traditional heat pump, it's not only is it efficiency, but it's capacity drops off really quickly when you start getting below 40 degrees. And so what do you do if it's, you know, 10 degrees outside, right? But the new technologies like Mitsubishi is one manufacturer that has figured out a way to take the waste heat off the compressor and um, actually mm-hmm. utilize that to increase the capacity and the efficiency. And that's how you get these, you know, I mean, that, uh, I've been told that some of these heat pumps will have discharge temperatures out of the register close to 125 degrees at 15 below which is remarkable because one of the other things that people aren't aware with your traditional heat pumps is that, um, the discharge temperature out of the registers is sort of a function of the outdoor air temperature because the unit has just has to work harder to get that heat out of colder air, but the newer technologies, they've solved these problems. And that's what really an exciting thing about electrification. People don't have to compromise anymore. If you're in a cold climate, you can, you can electrify your
0: home. So how, how cold are we talking? Like I'm in Philadelphia. I guess, right on the, you know, bottom of climate zone five and four and top of four. Is that the kind of climate where that would work? Absolutely. Even further north? Further north? Absolutely.
1: Well, for example, one of my first homes, I had a heat pump that, uh, in that, and, you know, it, it, once you, get past, once you get down past about 10 degrees at that studies, I did then found that it was just as expensive to run the heat pump as it was to do electric resistance backup. So the issue isn't that they can't work at lower speeds. It's just that they become uh, the, the standard heat pumps don't have the capacity to be any more efficient than just electric resistance heat, but gotcha. the newer, the new technologies they do, you, you know, and you always, you always will have backup resistance heat. It's just that you won't need to use it unless there's the system fails for whatever reason. Okay, makes sense. And we can also use this technology for water heating. So for example, I have a heat pump water heater in my house, the The wattage draw of my old electric resistance water heater was about 4400 watts. The, the watt draw of my heat pump water heater is 100 watts. Wow. So it's four times <laughs> ty- basically my my hot water bills dropped or a fourth of what they were on electric resistance. So we can use electric uh, heat pump uh, for heating water as well. What's the, the is
0: there? There's a premium on the initial cost, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, so these units, instead of being maybe eight hundred thousand dollars, they're closer to thirteen to fifteen hundred dollars. But when you look at over electric resistance water heater, if let's say my a typical uh, rate at let's say twelve to thirteen cents a kilowatt hour, you'd probably spend about four hundred to four fifty a year heating your water with electricity. Um, with a heat pump water heater, you know you're gonna it's gonna cost you a hundred dollars a year. So saving three hundred dollars a year, that thirteen hundred dollar investment pays for itself pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah. Yeah.
0: Are any? Do you are you aware of any um, jurisdictions where that's moving into code uh, equipment like that?
1: Or oh yeah, well there's been well there's been I think 60, 59 or sixty cities that have outlawed natural gas in the United States altogether, in, as for new construction, uh, where right? in other words you can't get a natural gas hookup. Wow. That's the whole electrification trend. Exactly, exactly. You know, because, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, there's there's global warming is happening. I know it's a political issue, but, you know, when, you know, it's hard to run from the science. And, uh, you know, all the major scientific organizations agree that, you know, well, you don't, for example, since uh, 1980, we've burned over 40 trillion gallons of oil. And wow. so, I mean, you just for 120 years, you don't release all that carbon in the atmosphere and not think that there's any, for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. So, what's happened is our oceans have been absorbing that. Heat. So, in other words, while our climate is only raised, you know, a little over three quarters of a degree since 1950, the problem is the oceans are getting so much warmer. And you know, since 1950, half of our coral reefs are been bleached or gone. Uh, in the in the, in two two years, over half the Great Barrier Reef is gone, gone. And 25 percent of all known marine life is you know based you know off off the coral reef. Yeah. So we're our, the ocean is like just one huge heat sink. And so once we we start messing with, you know, life in the ocean, that's that's the beginning of the food chain. Yeah. Wow. That's some scare. That's some interesting stats. That's- well, again, here's another interesting statistic. Um, in the last four to seven thousand years, global temperatures only raised about four to seven degrees. And the last century, it's raised three quarters of a degree, a little over th- at 0.82. Huh. So the rate of change is what everybody's starting to realize. Right. It's finally catching up with us.
0: Right. Uh, Back to solar for a minute. How does, um, do some places allow or disallow solar to go back into the grid? How does
1: that, Uh, how does that work? Well, now the big push is to be able to take advantage of excess solar and, and put it back in the grid. So for example, if you look at California and here in Arizona, our peak times have shifted from like two to three o'clock in the afternoon to, you know, three to eight o'clock at night, because once the solar starts dying down, you know, Mm -hmm. so most everywhere they have, they have net metering, which means that whatever I generate, if I generate more than I use, I get a check back from the utility, Um, you know, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most everywhere, you know, people can take advantage of this. There are some places where hasn't been very solar friendly, you know, um, but uh, for the most part, you know, I think most of the utilities have been somewhat cooperative and in, in living with the fact that they're trying to encourage the use of solar. But yes, you can certainly back into the grid. And that's why it's a combination of a good building envelope uh, good solar and even batteries we're going to start to see batteries become more and more important so that we don't have those tremendous loads on the grid we could store that energy and even even the, the some places the utilities are figuring out plans to be able to take that battery storage and utilize that back into the grid in <laughs> fact in Hawaii they will give you a rebate on a battery if they can take that energy that's stored in the battery that they've generated all day and put it back into the grid during the peak times that are after the you know the sun starts to go down that makes sense? It's That's cool. Yeah. And now, I would like to say that when you think to uh, you know, when people think about global warming, you know, gases and, and GWP, you know, when they talk about global warming potential, CO2 has a global warming potential or GWP of one. Um, some of the spray foams used to have GWPs up in the 13 1500. But now all the manufacturers are creating products that are less than five. So you know, foam, I think over the years has gotten kind of a bad rap, uh, you know, but now the products that are on the market are very environmentally friendly. And yeah. the fact that when you consider the energy that they save over the lifetime, in fact, when you look at uh, foams, when you look at a lot of our engineered lumber, like you look at OSB, you look at iJoist, you look at, um, you know, any of the engineered lumbers, they all have the same chemical, a lot of the same chemicals in it that that foam does. And we consider those to be very environmentally friendly. Uh, Yeah,
0: interesting perspective. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, I know our new um, froth pack that we just reformulated. um, We've dropped the uh, global warming potential by 99%. We took out 99%.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, you know, I wouldn't feel right about doing a podcast without trying to help people, enlighten people. The fact that, you know, uh, I was given a a webinar today. And one of the questions is, well, wait a minute, what about the global warming potential of, of, you know, foam? And so it's, 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 it's slow to get the message out, but it's getting out there. I think people like companies like yourself, you know, it's be important to start marketing campaigns to help people understand this. I mean, a lot of people really aren't, don't aren't even aware of, you know, a lot of these issues that we're talking about today. So it's important. Education is the key to motivation. Okay, let's
0: talk a little bit of decarbonization. I mean, we've, we've touched on it some, I guess. Um, I saw an interesting graph that showed over the history of, I guess, humankind of mankind. We've gone from burning wood, to burn, you know, we've decarbonized over time. So it's only a natural progression, right? We've gone from wood to coal to oil to natural gas. Now we're getting into renewables. Um, seems like it's like, it just seems like that's the course of evolution here.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, we, you know, when you look at where we're heading, I mean, I think, you know, the handwriting is on the wall that, you know, we have to do something to, you know, curb the issues that we've just been talking about. And, electrification decarbonization is definitely key. And what's really interesting, when you look at uh, what's happened with electric vehicles just in the last few years, I mean, people are really um, asking themselves, wow, do I even uh, even want a gas powered car in the future? I mean, it's it's like, uh, it's, I think it shows you that people are really starting to take interest in these topics. You know, when you look at the millennials, which are 70, almost 72 million millennials between the ages of 25 and, um, 40, uh, the vast majority of people in that age group, you know, they, they really believe that climate change is a significant issue facing a future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that I'm, you know, I'm, considering my next car I buy may very well be my last internal combustion engine, right? Because in the next five to 10 years, I don't know, f- folks like myself may very well make the plunge into electric vehicles.
1: Yeah. Well, so we've had an electric vehicle since 2017 and, and I absolutely love it. You know, I mean, when you, the average person only drives about 40, 40- two miles a day. And so people who are taking big long commutes, of course, but for the most part, um, you know, you can set these up to a little charge off peak, um, you know, you charge at night, get up and drive your car during the day, but we have, uh, we've enjoyed the vehicle a lot, you know, and particularly when you look at the impact of what's happened in the Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine and you know, all the Russian oil issues that we're facing and what that's done to our economy. Um, sure. You know, it it's time to be energy independent. And part of that is electrification and energy efficiency in our homes and, you know, cars. I mean, we have about, I think there's over 350,000 premature deaths each year due to air pollution. And when you look at automobile or vehicle exhaust has a lot of, particles that are less than that two and a half microns, which those are particles that can bridge the gap between the lung tissue and your bloodstream. And so that's it's has a huge impact on cardiovascular disease, respiratory illnesses. And this is all from air pollution. And a lot of this comes from cars. Yeah, and so and once people, ever, you know, people start driving electric cars, they find out, oh, my God, we love it. We love the acceleration. We love the convenience. Um, so I think uh, I think the evidence is when you look at Ford and both GM, both their, their trucks, you know, they've sold out production for the first two years. Right. Right. And, you know, all the electric vehicle manufacturers, uh, they're all back, they're all ordered. So clearly, there is a public demand for electric vehicles. And I think part of that is people recognize that, you know, this, this climate change issues are, are real.
0: It's happening. It's real. Yeah.
1: So let's talk photovoltaics
0: a minute. What, what's happened over time with the efficiencies and the cost and, and use, I guess, of photovoltaics? I'm thinking on people's homes now.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're we call it rooftop solar. Well, solar costs have dropped in half uh, over the last several years. And uh, right now we're down to about $3 a watt. Um, the efficiencies have went up substantially. We see now we've got, we see panels that we can do almost 475 watts per panel. Um, you're looking at efficiencies of, you know, in close to the mid 20% range, which that you know, these are, in the last 10 years has probably doubled. Um, you're looking at the inverter technology has an optimizing technology has gotten way better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, like in California, for example, I think most all the new homes are required to be all electric ready. And the last version of the code cycle in California, for example, um, they were, you know, they required homes to have, be solar ready. So when you look at the combination between being electric ready, solar ready, and then, and in fact, nationwide, Alan, all of the building codes, um, no matter, you know, whether it be individual states or the IECC, they're all moving towards um, zero net energy homes. That's what they're striving for is to get, is, make homes, allow homes to produce as much energy as they use. And in order to do that, you have to have a good building envelope, good HVAC system. So again, it's a combination of efficient solar yeah. with a good building envelope. The solar, and HVAC. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. And sorry. in addition to a good HVAC equipment as well.
0: Sure. The, I know in the early days, one of the criticisms of solar was, well, it took government subsidies and government support to really make it work economically for an individual. Is that the case today? Or is that oh, not sure it
1: was because fossil fuels were so cheap? Yeah, and solar was expensive. But look what's happened to the cost of solar. I mean, it's really dropped. Um, well, so Alan, the last decade alone, uh, we've seen an average annual growth rate of 49% a year. And there are now more than 8100 gigawatts of solar capacity installed nationwide, that's enough to power almost 16 million homes. And the city systems have co- dropped about 70% in cost. Wow, so 16 million homes. There's like
0: 130. I think the last number I saw was 140 million existing homes in the U.S.
1: Yeah, so yeah, that that probably counts multifamily too. Okay, sing, single family. But it's remarkable that these systems have dropped 70 percent in cost. Just in uh, the Phoenix area alone, we Arizona Public Service tells me they're putting in thousand to 1,100 rooftop solar systems a month.
0: Wow. And how big, you mentioned, uh, would you say 400 and some odd watts per panel? How big is a yeah, panel?
1: Yeah, they, they have, uh, you, well, you want to be careful about how you do that, because you also have to look the size of the panel. It's really how many watts per square foot is what you want to look at as a metric. But there are panels out there that um, can put out, up upwards of 470 watts. So as these get more efficient, that means you need less real estate. And that's important because um, if you happen to have a house that's not perfectly oriented towards the sun, yeah, um, there's only so much real estate that you got to use PV. So the other alternative is this to reduce your loads. And that's why the building envelope and efficient HVAC is such an important component as well. Okay, you we get and- the idea in 2019 40% of all new electric generation capacity came from solar 40%. 40% of all new, all new, all new generation. Wow. So it's pretty, pretty impressive numbers and and 17 states now are, are producing over 10,000 megawatts huh. of energy.
0: And what, what does a homeowner do? Like, So what's the life cycle? How long does that panel last? And I've always thought about what do you do if you have to do a roof repair or, you know, reshingle your roof, like that's kind of a becomes a big deal, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, both good questions. Um, so the life of these systems are about 25 years. So it is important to recognize that we need to be responsible about how we recycle these products, number one, Uh, but they're getting better every day. No, no doubt about it. Getting getting better every day. Yeah. And so I think that uh, with regards to stalling solar, Europe, the first thing you want to do is you want to have a really durable roof system that is you don't want to put solar on an old roof, right? So most of the solar contractors, they won't touch your roof unless unless it's a fairly new roof. Um, but rather than pick a 25-year roof system, you might want to consider something, something like a stone-coated metal roof or other types of products that are a little longer lasting, some of the synthetic products. Um, so that I think those are important things. I really encourage people to... Um, you know, utilize solar over outdoor living spaces, places where, you know, trellises, awnings, these type of places where you're not really so concerned about waterproofing your roof.
0: Ah, that's good, yeah. And what do you do in like snow environments? Are you worried about snow? collecting on them or the
1: well uh well that's an issue obviously if the snow's on it works so well but normally these things that you know the snow blows off of them and I mean, you can get you know you know stuff that builds up on them but they try to put them in a pitch that you know most of this stuff drains off but um believe it or not the, the solar output as long as it's sunny um it's not a huge difference in this in this in the output it's really when it becomes partially cloudy is when you start to see the output drop
0: it's about the photons. It's about the light.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, like, for example, where I live at in a dry climate, we get pretty good output, because we don't have any atmosphere that diffracts the the light. And, you know, but uh, in some parts of the country where it's cloudy a lot, then probably doesn't make as much quite as much economic sense. But again, the technology is getting better every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Anything else on photovoltaics that we haven't touched on? Well, everybody should consider them, that's for sure, and <laughs> consider um, the system that is compatible with batteries, because I think um, in the future, um, what we're starting to see, like Snyder Electric, they make these amazing electrical panels that will allow you to backfeed your electric car into Um, your house. So you've probably seen the ads for Ford and General Motors, where they say you could power your house up, you know, three days with this. So when if you're building new homes, you might want to consider uh, solar friendly uh, panel boxes that allow you to, you know, utilize this energy from your electric car to go back into the grid and even use your car as a storage unit, in addition to batteries. So let's
0: talk a minute just and we'll finish up on on the solar. How do people um, you you can then if you're going to sell that power back into the grid, there are third parties that'll do it for you, and then they, they take a cut of that. Is that how that works, or you can manage it yourself? I'm talking I about S, the, SREX the and that utilities. kind of thing. Oh, it's all, most, it's, uh,
1: it's, most of the public utilities are regulated, and when those regulated utilities, they typically have a commission that, you know, kind of gives them guidance on what they're going to do. They just don't make these decisions just all on their own. So it's called what they call it net metering. And so it's usually legislated that the utility will, you know, buy power back at a negotiated rate that they do with their uh, public utilities commission. So for example, let's say my rates are, are 13 cents a kilowatt hour um, for what I buy. If I want to sell back um, they might buy it back at, say, $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's not full on. It just depends on the, the deals that each of these utilities negotiate with their public regulators. But the good news is it all happens to the utility. So once you sign up for solar, get the solar installed. Um, if you generate more than you use, uh, you get a check back. Uh, you know, assuming that the, you know, how all this math work out, like I just explained. So yeah. it, it's, it really makes a lot of economic sense. And here's another thing, Zillow did a study a few years back, and found that uh, nationwide, the average uh, increase in value of a home that had solar on it was about 4.3%. 4.2%. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, say you've got a $400,000 home, you know, you've just increased the value of the home $16,000. And then the tax credits are really attractive. So, you know, solar becomes pretty cost effective.
0: Yeah, that's great. So let's, uh, let's switch a little bit. So we've talked, we've talked about electrification, decarbonization, the solar photovoltaics, all of, and, I think the most amazing stat I heard there was you said 40% of new electricity generation was solar in 2019, I think was your number.
1: Yeah, 2019. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's, that's amazing. And part of that, Alan, is due to this electrification goals is that utilities are, you know, if you fly into major cities, like if you've ever flown into Indianapolis and you can see they have acres and acres of solar farms there. And you wouldn't think that Indiana, for example, would be that productive, but this is a pretty high output system. Yeah. so yeah i mean you you know recognize that the, the nice thing about solar there's not a lot of moving parts so you know it's a pretty reliable energy yeah. source overall right and all
0: of those obviously we and you made the point require you know attention to detail on the, and a good building envelope tight and well insulated
1: yeah absolutely yeah. and that's i think there's i think everybody's looking for the one silver bullet to kind of make their home energy efficient and yeah. really it's a whole host of technologies that we want to utilize to, you know, reduce our hot water heating costs, reduce our building heating, and cooling costs, um, reduce our plug loads, um, you know, and then have a, a way to generate electricity and, and store it. Yeah. And I think too, some of the things that we've heard about all the, you know, the hackers and things like that, they're trying to break into our grids and things like this. I think having, uh, being a little more energy independent and having a home that can flywheel to certain periods of the day. I mean, the people in Texas certainly learned that uh, during that last winter when they lost a lot of, um, a lot of the grid. And so, power. you know, having a building envelope that can, you know, flywheel for several hours without power is certainly makes a lot of sense for people's comfort. Right. Right. So Let's talk about the building envelope a little bit around insulation.
0: So um, exterior foam. Um, You know, it's, it's used, it's not used on majority of homes by any stretch. Um, What do you think are the challenges with builders wanting to use um, exterior continuous insulation, because it makes a lot of sense, right, you get great, um, you reduce your thermal bridging and, and these kind of things, it makes sense for the building envelope. And you've described some of the decarbonization benefits and so forth, and the long you
1: know longevity.
0: Why why is it not more popular? Why is it simply price and cost, or what what do you think drives that?
1: Well, no, I think really this really changed a lot when the wind codes started changing. Um, so when you looked at uh, when you look at what happened to exterior sheathing, like for example, for most parts of the country, you could put plywood or OSB on the corners, and that's all the shear strength you needed. To, you know, yeah. the, you know, and then as we started seeing more violent storms and things of this nature, people realized that you know what, um, you know, these home these homes need to be built stronger, and so then almost overnight, literally almost overnight, the industry switched from you know foam products. In fact, if you go back in the '80s and and early '90s, foam was really popular, uh, but as the wind codes changed, um, then people started putting OSB up, and they said, well, okay, how in the world are we going to put an unpermeable impermeable product over a hydroscopic building material. So now I'm putting something that doesn't have the capacity to breathe over a wood-based sheathing. So if I get water behind that, then that's going to be a problem. So it kind of spooked everybody. But now we've got so many amazing technologies to, you know, solve that problem. We can build a building envelope that can have foam on the outside. Um, foam on the exterior of a wall actually reduces the potential for uh, mold buildup on the back of the sheathing. So it comes down to good moisture management principles. And that means utilizing rain screens, utilizing drain wraps, utilizing poppy flashing techniques. So we manage that water. So foam on the exterior makes a lot of sense because remember about 25% of our house is wood. So in other words, if I have a thousand square feet of wall and I've got a 25% framing factor, which is pretty typical throughout the United States, that means 25% of that wall is wood or 250 square feet out of that thousand square feet is wood. And the R value of a two by four stud is about 4.35. So if I can put an R5 or an R10 over that, that makes for a much more efficient system. Like my system here, I'm going to use um, the, the Thermax CI, which is an R10 inch and a half product. Then I'm going to have my uh, stucco wrap and then my OSB. And then behind that, I'm going to do two inches of the froth pack product, which will be 12.2. And then I'll finish out the balance of my two big se- two by six wall with uh, probably either blown fiberglass or open cell spray foam. So I'm going to have an R value of my walls about R37. And um you know, so and I'm doing that so that, you know, I can really minimize maximize my thermal envelope, and then also get us, you know, get close to net zero as possible.
0: Yeah. And so you can check
1: out if they go to the Green Builder website, go to greenbuildermedia.com. And click on Vision House, and then click on the Scottsdale project, you can see all kinds of videos and content on what we're doing there.
0: Yeah. And your comfort level there with that construction, that assembly is because you're doing all the right things around water management.
1: Well, yeah, I'm not the least bit worried about it. I am going to be using a rain screen lath material and then uh, thin coat stucco, so the likelihood of, I mean, of water ever getting behind that system, because I'm, I'm, i it's a system, and the system has been well thought out, well tested. You guys have put a lot of research R&D into that, and. Um, you Know years ago I helped with that and I feel very confident in, in the testing that everybody's done that this is you know it's all about diligence and best practice when you put these pieces together and you want to do that no matter whether you're using exterior insulation or not. I'm just saying we don't have to be afraid. Your question was, why don't we see more exterior insulation? I think the biggest reason is is people trying to figure out how do I integrate that with my doors and windows and you know, but it's really simple to do. Uh, you guys got probably some of the best graphics on your website that I've ever seen that really walk you through step by step how to do it along with videos. And, you know, so I mean, I think uh, I would, I, there's, there's no reason for people to be afraid of it. But I think that's just a an education process. Yeah. For in California, for example, for 30 years, they've been doing thin coat stucco uh, over XPS phone. True. And one layer of building paper 30 years, and right. literally millions of homes probably over that period of time. Um, you know, it it has been built since the, since the last 30 years, when you look at, you know, California used to build about um, 250,000 homes a year.
0: No, that's a great proof point. Hadn't thought of that. Yeah. That's a a really good proof point. It's all about moisture management. So let's, um, we'll close here on one last topic. So you do an awful lot of work and you mentioned it, I think with the utility companies and training and
1: education. Uh, well, yeah, the utility companies, um, um, most utility companies are uh, publicly held, and they're regulated by their local, you know, entities. Um, so, for example, in California, all the major utilities are regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. Another, Arizona, it might be called the Arizona Corporation Commission, and these are these entities that say, okay, it's really uh, we're, we're this. We're going to manage this process. We want to. We recognize that air pollution is bad for the environment, and you know, so they. They require that the utilities provide education training for contractors. So um, a lot of these utilities do webinars, they do on-site training, and they're geared towards just educating the people about best building practices. So, for example, uh, if you go to pg and Sa- Sacramento Municipal Utility District, Southern California Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, uh, even Buckeye Power in Ohio, um, you go to these. You can go to their websites, and um, you can take a lot of these courses are on demand and some of them are live webinars. Uh, but I probably do probably at least 50 of those a year, uh, because the the utilities recognize that educated contractors and people ultimately help reduce these loads. I mean, there's a real scramble right now for utilities to figure out how they're going to deal with these peak loads in the evening. And so part of that is a good building envelope. And so it's in their best interest to make sure that, um, you know, people are using building techniques that reduce that demand during the times of the day when it's very difficult for them to meet that demand. So you're saying the peak is at the end of the day as folks come home and the, and the,
0: and the utilities are struggling to meet that?
1: Yeah so for example um, yeah people come home and they get home at five o'clock and the solar systems are starting to you know reduce their generation gotcha. so okay they're yeah. starting to cook they're doing laundry um, you know they're turning their lights they're turning you know maybe cooling their houses more, heating their houses more and so um, that peak load has shifted till in the evening and so the utilities got to make up that demand. And so for them it's cheaper to have people put money into good building envelopes and efficient hvac systems good windows than it is to you know build a bigger build. power plant right because that's a fixed asset and a lot of these power plants aren't peaking power plants they they need to run full out to be economical now they're starting to see more and more peaking power plants being built but the point is those are very expensive assets for utilities to come up with and so there's so it makes sense for them to be able to um And provide incentives for people to reduce the energy use. And so, for example, where I'm at, we actually have demand charges. So I typically in the older house, I might pay as much as $200 a month, just for demand charges in addition to the electricity I use. That's like a premium. Yeah. So in other words, let's say uh, I had a peak demand of of 10 kW at six o'clock at night. They're gonna uh, say, okay, we have to pay so much at KW for that, because you know, it's really expensive for us to, you know, provide that power. Gotcha. And so you pay a demand charge. And we're gonna see more and more of that happen nationwide, I think. Interesting. Yeah.
0: As a way to tamp that down. Um, okay, one last question here for well, two last questions, actually. Um, first is, you know, there's any number of ways to skin the sustainability cat, if you will, and there's, you know, energy efficiency, we talk about, you know, doing good things for the climate, Circular economy, you know, recycle are build in in the work you do with builders and the requests you get and so forth, are, are builders aware of that? Or is it strictly pretty much an energy efficient energy efficiency conversation?
1: Uh, I think more and more builders are, I think, I think it's because what's driving this is consumer demand. And when you look at some of the data that some companies, you know, companies like Green Builder Media have done a lot of research on, you know, people purchasing habits and, you know, more and more uh, people are starting to, you know, pay attention to this. And it's not just about energy efficiency, it's also, and the climate change is also about comfort. I mean, the beauty of this is like these systems, like when you look at some of the inverter technologies that we're seeing in these heat pump systems, they actually like the the system I'm putting in, it actually will vary the speed of the compressor based on the true load. So it knows the indoor temperature, it knows the set point, and it knows the outdoor temperature, and it will actually, you know. Tailor the speed of the compressor to actually mix the load. So instead of having these big cycles on and off, you get more consistent temperature and more consistent comfort um, without these big temperature swings. So it's not not just about energy efficiency, building durability, and even climate change. It's also about people's comfort. And when you look at the noise level, these systems are so much quieter. Uh, And so I think that, you know, we just have so many great technology choices today. That's cool. That's a really cool system.
0: Okay, final question before we close. So I ask a lot of guests this question. What, um, in your travel, well, I'll, I'll ask you your, I'll ask it this way of your opinion. In your opinion, how long should a home last? Oh, 100
1: years. 100 years. Or more. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. minimum of 100 years. And it's really important to have thoughtful design, not trendy design. And um, that's why we need to pay attention to the basics. So like in my project here, for example, you might have recalled that I have, you know, porch, uh, you know, covered areas over the front of the house that faces the Southwest. So I don't get any direct sunlight after March in through the, all, all the glass, yeah. uh, designed it to be, have passive, uh, cooling so that you can open up the windows on one side of the house. It flows through as you recall from being there. Um, so it's also just you know, a really thoughtful design. I have, I have an you know, 30 inch overhangs over the top parts of the roof. Um, And then of course, if you can orient your house in a nice north south orientation, that's important. So um, yeah, all these factors are really important considerations. Yeah, that's how you get to 100 years plus. That's how you get to 100. And well, not only that, if you have a building that's comfortable to be in, because you'll feel good in the space, because you've got natural daylight, you've got natural cooling, you got, you know, natural heating, for that matter. Um, You know, it's a it's a, a place you know, that's more comfortable to be in, you're not going to be apt to want to remodel it or tear it down and start over. Yeah, right.
0: Well, great. Well, that um, brings us to a close. So Steve Easley, it's been so great talking to you. You have so much knowledge to share and interesting and you come at it from an engineering standpoint. I always enjoy that. And hopefully the the listeners did as well. So thanks so much for um, being on the podcast today. Yeah, it was
1: great to be here. Good talking to you, Alan. Thanks.
0: This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.